First Peter chapter 3, we are going to finish up our ladies today, and that means next week, Lord willing, we will be heading into studying the uh, just a single verse, but it's going to take us a couple of weeks because we're going to cross-reference it into some other passages on husbands. And I, uh, for those of you who have been through premarital counseling with me, know this is one of my favorite verses to use uh, with regard to the role of husbands. So that's coming up next week and the week following. Today we want to finish up, as I talked about it last week and the week before, I told you I skipped a word, uh, really a prepositional phrase, along the way. And we're going to come back and address that today uh, because it is, comes up again at the end of our passage. So let's read these six verses again to help set the tone for what we're going to be discussing today. It says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. They, even if some do not obey the word, they without a word can be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in formal times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now, we have uh, in the initial instruction to, of wives of being submissive to their husbands and conditioned upon, uh, or I should say unconditioned upon, their obedience. That is that it doesn't matter whether they are being obedient to God's word or disobedient to God's word. We still have this directive that we are to be submissive, you are to be submissive to your own husbands. Uh, and that that is uh, similar and comparable likewise to Christ in his condition of allowing himself to be maltreated, to be spoken awry of by those that falsely accused him of being maltreated not only by his own people, but by the Roman people, when he certainly had the authority and power to reject all of that, to avoid all of that, but rather he embraced that. And he submitted himself to the ordinances and to the, to the abuses of men as part of his humiliation. And we talked about humility as being the foundation here. We then went on and we looked at beauty and the necessity of an inner beauty that transcends our outer beauty. For the first example, for the first point two weeks ago, uh, our, the, the one we looked at was Abigail, if you remember that, when we went and looked at her as our example, where uh, she was married to a fool, and she knew it, to a scoundrel is how he was described, who would not listen to reason. He was so foolish that even though he was confronted again and again, his own servants knew it, his wife knew it, everyone knew the character of this man, and yet she served him and the household uh, honestly and rightly, and, and uh, she was our example of that, that humility that she exemplified before the, the uh, anointed king of Israel, David. And so then we come to this, and last week we looked at beauty and the necessity of the, of the inner beauty, the, the spirit of a gentleness and of quietness, of settledness that we see here. And again, our example was Sarai, uh, Sarah, that uh, had certainly all the external beauty that could be desired. Uh, we see her as... as uh, very attractive, and yet it was not her physical attraction, though that was attractive to certainly uh, others and was evident to them. It was her inner attractiveness that she was submissive to her husband, that she responded to him, she, re she regarded him, and even to the point of obeying, even when it was offensive to obey him. It was personally offensive. And I'm sure most of you women would be offended if your husband says, I, I don't want you to tell anybody you're married to me. And you're going into an environment you haven't been in before. And what that sets you up for, which it happened to her. And yet she was obedient. And certainly he was driven by fear instead of faith. We talked about that. And yet she followed after him and called him Lord. And that I'm going to obey no matter what you require of me. 
even if it's offensive, even if it can be dangerous, even if it is driven by fear instead of faith. And this is a righteous man, Abraham, we're talking about. So even they fail. And so it is necessary we understand the extent of what we're talking about, about a contented spirit, a gentle spirit that says, I'm going to submit myself. And we talked about the necessity of contentment. That this is my husband, that, that I am satisfied where God, that God will work in him and in our circumstances to, a glory, to his glory. And that's what I'm trusting in. I'm not really trusting in my husband. I am obeying my husband, but I'm trusting in the Lord. And that's going to come into a big part today in our study. And so uh, we've looked at those two examples. And we come now to a phrase that's here. And, and verse 2 ends with the words, by fear. Uh, that, we, that, that your, your husband should observe your chaste or pure uh, conduct uh, by fear. And it's not them fearing. It is very, the Greek is very precise here in a sense that we know whose fear it is. It's not your husband being afraid. It is you. That they're going to see your chaste conduct accompanied by, conjoined with, that you have chastity with a, a kind of fear. And you might say, well, why should my husband see a fearfulness? I mean, that's the word that I skipped two weeks ago. Because when we get to the end of this passage, at the end of verse 6, it says, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. You say, well, which is it? Am I supposed to be afraid or am I supposed to do good without any terror? Being afraid of any terror. Am I supposed to have fear or not have fear? And the answer is yes. Because these are two very different statements. Uh, as we're going to see here shortly. Let's talk about the first statement uh, to begin with. The word here is by fear that you're going to have chaste conduct. And commentators have talked about this in, in several ways. And instead of picking one of them, I really think that there's a, a good argument for both and. That we're looking at this in terms of why do we live a pure life? Why do we have this virtuous living? You know, every women's conference somewhere along the line over the years has done Proverbs 31 of a virtuous woman and who can find her and what's her value and all of that. Um, we looked at that, and of course that chapter isn't written to women at all. It's written completely to men for them in their understanding of women and discovery of that, which is why we're going to really reference it next week a lot more. Okay? And so we come to this, and we say, well, I want to be a virtuous one. Well, why? What is the motivation of this chaste conduct? What is the motivation of this sum, uh, submission? And we, we have in this concept, this is just a simple Greek word, phobia, uh, phobos. It's the word we get, phobia. So if you're agoraphobia, you're afraid of what? Water. Acro, acro for is heights. Agoraphobia is when you're afraid of gardening. I just made that one up. Agrophobia, get it? Agriculture phobia, okay. I wish I had that. Um, and so we have phobia is fear. It's just a very basic Greek word, but it has a lot of nuances, much like our word fear has a lot of nuances to it. And hence they use the word fear here. They're going to use the word afraid at the, at, in verse 6 uh, to try to help us with some of the understanding of the nuances of this word. And so by fear that we are, that, that the wife is committed to submitting to her husband, she's committed to this pure, uh, virtuous conduct by a certain amount of fear. And, and again, we have two tracks we want to go with this. One is that this is directed with uh, regard to the demands of God in our life. That there should be a, a certain sense of the fear of the Lord that is in us, that we understand that we are held to account in this area. And I don't want to diminish this. Uh, God is holding you to account of you doing your part in your marriage. You are accountable for that. Now we're going to take a big load off of your shoulders because we recognize that God holds the leadership in any relationship 
to a higher level of accountability. But there is a level of accountability that is yours and yours alone, and that is whether or not you're going to live virtuously and godly in front of and before and toward your husband, no matter what he does, no matter what he is like. This is the issue. This is what is loaded on you, and therefore you have a certain fearful expectation. God is judging me with regard to my relationship with this family, not in the mega ways of the leadership role, because that's my husband's responsibility, it lands on his shoulders, but on how I am responding to him. And so certainly there is that concept of, of understanding that this is something you carry yourself, that your husband does not carry for you, um, nor do your children. You carry the responsibility for this yourself. Your virtue and your uh, submission, your humility there is your responsibility. And it is not, while, while God may hold the husband accountable for the balance of what goes on in your family, in this regard, it is yours and yours alone. But there's another track of this that I also want to talk about. Um, it would really seem that this is, a, this is not only a statement possibly regarding your relationship with God, but also your relationship with the husband. That there's a certain fearfulness that you should be exhibiting towards your husband. And you might say, should I be afraid of my husband, that he's going to hit me, things like that. Um, and, and I'm not going to go to the direction that you might think of as that you should have respect, that this is the because that's really not what the Greek word phobia is all about. Um, but a true fearfulness, and, and many have rightly, I think, identified this as an unwillingness to bring them displeasure. I do not want to displease them. I don't, it's not just I don't want to make them angry lest I have to cower in the corner. I don't want to do anything that brings them displeasure. I don't want them to be upset at me. I don't want them to... Uh, not be welcome in their own home and have a sense of belonging there. I don't want them to sense any of that, that there is a, an idea of, I am afraid of displeasing him, whether it be in my physical appearance, in my countenance, uh, in, my act, in my housekeeping, in my apparel, certainly also in my spirit especially, that I don't want there to be any concept of displeasure. I'm afraid of making him to be displeased. And that's the gist, really, of this. Certainly, I'm not discounting the other, but I really think the focal point here is that your husband sees that you want to please him. And it's stated in the negative here. It's more than just, I'm submitting to you because I have to and God told me to and you're the boss. It's, the positive side stated in a negative, that you have a fear of displeasing him, which means that you have a desire to please him. That that is what drives you. That is the motivation there. The character quality behind that is humility, but there is a sense that I recognize I have responsibility to God, that's there, uh, but I also want to take it more than just doing the minimum, I want to take this to the point that I don't want to bring displeasure in your life at all, in any category. And is there a fear element here? And yes, the word is phobia. So what happens if you have a phobia? So if I have a phobia, I have very few phobias. Um, I have around me some people that do, though. And, uh, you know, my wife has a kind of a fear of heights, and so I know better than to make her walk next to the edge of a cliff when we're hiking in the mountains. I, I understand that. We're going to talk about that a lot next week. So I make sure that I'm always out towards the edge and she's always in towards the edge. And I make sure that I'm not even out towards the edge too much because she gets just nervous that I'm going to fall off the edge. Uh, but I, I try to accommodate that. So what does she do because she has a fear of heights? Well, what's the number one thing you do if you have a fear of something? You avoid it, don't you? You avoid it. When we talk about, I have a fear of causing my husband displeasure, then of the first evidence of that is you're going to avoid displeasing him. 
every wife who's been married for a while, uh, I'm going to give you five to ten years, somewhere in that thing, uh, sometimes earlier, but, but at least by then, you know exactly which buttons to push on your husband. Don't you? You know the things that bug him. You know the things that he gets annoy him. You know the things that displease him. You know the buttons to push. And I've seen women purposefully in their relationship with their husband push those buttons on a regular basis as a power trip. I've seen it destroy marriages in this church. Because they simply can. And it's not in their heart to say, I don't want to displease him. I don't want to push any of those buttons in his life. And we can sit here and start listing them off, but I don't have to list them off because you know your husband's. And each every husband has different pressure points that are going to annoy him in certain circumstances. You know, and the typical things, the stereotypical things, I really should say, uh, it, you know, there is, is nagging. But nagging takes lots of different forms, both subtle and uh, very aggressive. And we know that. We know what we're doing. And so, uh, basically, it's saying, I have a fearfulness of pushing his buttons. Not because of the reaction I might get, but because I'm a virtuous woman, and it's not my desire to do that. And we have, I think, a very powerful example of this kind of fearfulness in a wife in Scripture. And while I've referenced this gal a couple of times, I really want to look at her, her statements today, and that's in the book of Esther. So we looked at Abigail, we looked at Sarah, we've referenced Esther, we've referenced Hannah, Hannah we've referenced some other ones, but today I want to really look at Esther because she really epitomizes for us this idea of being afraid, fearful, of displeasing your husband. And I want you to, to look at this. Esther chapters 5 is where we're going to go. And really, we could go back into chapter 4. Let's go back into chapter 4 first. So let's set the stage of the danger. And there is a danger, especially if your husband isn't walking with the Lord. There is a real and present danger involved in displeasing him. We're not discounting that. Um, I'm just saying that it goes beyond that, even just annoying him and getting maybe the silent treatment or something, whatever it is from your husband. There should be a fearfulness about inciting that. Verse 11 in chapter 4 <clears throat> says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the, whole, the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So, this is Esther talking, reminding Mordecai, listen, you're asking me to intervene for our people, but I have a problem. The king hasn't looked toward me for 30 days. Okay? Uh, and I don't have a legal right to walk into his presence. These are all the realities of the facts of the situation. And there is a, a, a substantial risk to going into there. He could have me killed. He could have me put to death. He has that authority. That's what the law dictates. And if I come upon him and he's in a sour mood, he's had a bad day at the office, um, we're not just talking about, you know, Slamming doors, we're talking about death. So that's the reality of what she was facing. And of course, Mordecai gives her some instructions, says, listen, if you don't do it, you know, God, God's going to deliver us from somewhere. But, uh, and then the famous phrase, who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe God put you there for this very reason. So that's when she says, have the people fast and pray. I'll go into him. If I die, I die. So she makes that declaration. But I want you to now look at her approach to the king. Verse 2. So it was, oh, let's start in verse 1. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes, 
stood in the inner court of the king's palace, crossed from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand, and Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. Do you think the king had any idea? Yes, he had every notion of that she was risking what she was risking to do what she did. I want you to notice that she put herself on all her royal apparel, so she's presenting herself to him in, the, in a respectful, honoring, and royal manner. She's putting on all the accoutrements of her royalty before him, uh, I would assume to be as, as appealing as possible to him. She stands there and waits for him. She doesn't approach him. She simply stands in the court and waits for his attention. She stands there and waits patiently. She could have been a long line of things going on in the court that day. But she stands there. He sees her. <clears throat> and she found favor in his sight. Is the risk over? No, he doesn't know why she's there, but she, he does know she's taken a great risk to come. Hasn't seen her for 30 days. She hasn't seen him. The king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? And look at how predisposed he is just by her appearance, by her physical presence and appearance. It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. She has come to him with great risk. She's come to him in all the beauty she can muster. And he has opened his heart to her. Does that mean her fear is over? Look at her response in verse 4. So Esther answered, if it pleases the king. Let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. And the king was, said, let's do this right now. That sounds great. Because <laughs> the weight of a man's heart is through his stomach, right? <clears throat> she already had his heart. But I want you to see, if it pleases the king. You see, she was afraid. So afraid, she hesitated, she balked at even initiating this contact. And so she wanted to do it in a proper way. She was willing to pay the price of presenting herself to the king on behalf of her people. She was willing to do that to overcome her fear, to operate by faith, and to do what she would do to try to please her king, knowing that there was a great peril out there. And look at her words, if it pleases you. Let's just start by having a meal together with you and my enemy. King doesn't know that's the enemy. And then at the meal, the question was again asked, and here we go, the, her answer, verse 8. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition, fulfill my request, and let the king even come to the banquet which I have prepared for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king asked. She wasn't quite ready. Still had some fear in her. And rightly so. Of course, this sets up Haman. We come to chapter 6. I'm sorry, chapter 7. <clears throat> 6 is the dream that God gives the king. Do you think God can work in your husband's heart without your help? Do you think that God can work in your husband's mind and heart and even in his disposition toward you without your help? God does that. He intervenes. She does. She overcomes her fear to the point, but yet that fearfulness is still very prevalent. It is evident in the way she handles herself, presents herself, and speaks. Even though it is obvious that she has her king's and her husband's attention and pleasure. He gave her the scepter, and she didn't just blurt it all out. He says, you want me for a banquet? All right, court dismissed, let's go. <laughs> get him quick, go get Haman, wherever he is, get him fast. 
We're going to have dinner with my queen. Up to half the kingdom I'll give you. I mean, there was every indication that she could have just blurted out what she wanted right there on the spot. But she still had a fearfulness that this is the king, that these are huge matters, that there needs to be patience, there needs to be a wait. I need to, that, that this needs to be done carefully. I don't want to displease him because she knows that as soon as she lays this weighty matter on his shoulders, he's going to go, ugh. More kingdom work. How to ruin a banquet. Right? Your husband comes home, you got this wonderful meal, you're, you're dressed to the nines, and you're having this great attitude. He sits down, and just as you get ready, cut into that juicy big steak. Oh, here's my honeydew list. Is that what this is about? You do all that, you say, oh, by the way, I crashed the car this afternoon. <sighs> Why didn't you just tell me at the beginning? She knows what's coming. He doesn't. She knows the issue at hand. He's just, he's just excited to have his queen and to have some, some opportunity for fellowship there and around a meal and to have kind of a little hiatus from all the responsibilities of the kingdom that are in the court that's a pay, made his... Full attention for 30 days now. So God works in his heart. Keeps him from sleeping to work in his heart. Chapter 7, second day. Question again. I'll give you what you asked for up to half the kingdom. And look at verse 3, Queen Esther answers and says, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue. If I could, if this wasn't as dire as it is, I wouldn't have brought it before you. But it's serious. And then, of course, we have the engagement of who it is and what's going on. The king has to leave the room to think about the consequences of this and the, and the severity of it and the weight of it. And in the course of that, of course, we have Haman begging for his life, understanding the things, and it's misinterpreted by the king as he comes back in, which is the end of the matter. And Haman is hanged, his sons are hanged, and there's the Feast of Purim by the end of the book. This is the kind of fear we're talking about. It is not only a respect, but an awe of it that says, I cannot just put these demands on my husband and say, you're in the head of this house, you have to take care of this. No, it is recognizing that he carries this heavy load and that you are about to add to it. And there is a right way to do that. And there should be a fearfulness. There should be a statement saying, if it pleases you. Oh, that we would have that kind of a spirit in our virtuous living in our homes. If it pleases you. Because I don't want to bring any displeasure. And I know that this is a, un that this is a displeasurable thing. This isn't a fun thing we have to address, but I, I don't want to be, I don't want to add to it. Even though I'm begging here for my life and the life of my people, I, I still want to know if I have found favor in your sight, if it pleases you to do something about it, then I'll put it out there, and if not, I will be quiet. Remember, that's without a word, you'll be one. And a husband can sense that spirit and that attitude. And it says that the husband will observe your chaste conduct and your fearfulness to displease him. Or to displease God. I'm not discounting that. But I think the account of Esther brings this whole spirit of this word forward. Now, fascinatingly, we have in Esther the exact same 
opportunity to study the last phrase of our passage in 1 Peter 3, and that is that we do so, I'll read it together, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now we have the concept, not of being afraid of your husband, but of being afraid of the results of doing good. And this is very similar to Jesus Christ, our example, and to the slave master command, do good, and if you suffer for doing good, you are blessed. Um, because everybody should suffer for doing wrong. If you suffer for doing good, then that weight is on the person who caused your suffering. It's not on you. And that is something you can carry much more easily because there's no guilt in that. And so here we have, all right, you're going to do good, what is good, and you're willing to bear the consequences without being afraid of them. It is seen in Esther's statement, if I perish, I perish. That is not being afraid with any terror. She was ready to die when she walked in the courtroom. She was ready for her husband to say, why are you fooling around with the affairs of my state? She was willing to do that. She was willing to pay the price, and she had already seen it. The history was already there. Don't forget what happened to Artaxerxes' other wife that interrupted his good time. She's not the queen anymore. And so when we look at this, she was not afraid of the circumstances of life around her. And no matter how dangerous those become, hence, I'm not afraid with any terror. There's no, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of the circumstances around this of doing good. But make sure you're doing good. And that good has already been explained in the whole passage, verses 1 through 6, that she has already overcome her fear for her own life, for her own relationship with her husband, with her own relationship with her people, with her relationship with her God even. She'd overcome this and she had put her faith there, says, I will do what is required and if I have to die in the process, so be it. But I'm going to do good. I'm going to do what's right. Oh, that you would do what's right in your relationship and not be afraid of the end result. If doing good displeases your husband to that degree, then it's on him. But you have done good. And therefore, we, don't, we can suffer the consequences of that without guilt. And that is the whole situation of the slaves and masters. You're trying to serve your master as best as you want, and he beats you anyway. Well, I should run away. No. You keep serving him better. What happens if that's in a marital relationship? And no, you don't have permission to run away. You serve it better. And the weight of that responsibility then goes on to him, and God will protect you. And that's what Esther does. She says, pray and fast. God protects not just me, but gives utterance, gives opportunity to protect everybody, the whole nation of Judah. Are we trusting in God to work in our husbands' lives so that we can be virtuous, submissive, with fear, by fear, that they can see that in us without being afraid of him rebelling against God's work in his life? Because your husband has to choose who he will serve. It's his choice. And I understand that there is a, a threat, a peril that is there if he chooses not to serve God. And that peril falls largely on you as a believing spouse. That's why God is so concerned about being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Because of the peril it produces. I have to believe that by and large, Peter's talking to gals who have come to know Christ their Savior, already married in that state, and were married to men who hadn't yet come to know Christ as their Savior. 
We see that even reported in the book of Acts on several occasions. Because there's a genuine peril there. But I'm not going to be afraid with any terror. I'm going to do good. I'm going to treat my husband as my Lord, as Sarah, as Esther, as Abigail. I'm going to treat my husband with honor and, and right and virtue. And then whatever comes out of that, I'm going to trust God for those circumstances, for my deliverance. And that deliverance takes a lot of different forms, doesn't it? For Abigail, the scoundrel dies. God releases you from it. Because the scoundrel didn't want to hear the truth. He didn't want to submit. He didn't want to ever surrender. For Esther today, her husband responds completely for her. Not just the day, but from that point forward in their relationship setting up her uncle as the ruler of the kingdom, essentially, under him, like Joseph of Egypt. For Sarah, who said, yes, Lord, I'll tell them you're my brother. She gets drugged into Pharaoh's house to be added to his harem, and God intervenes. Not in her husband, but in Pharaoh. Interesting, huh? help from outside, from who you think the enemy is. Because Pharaoh was really the enemy of their relationship because he brought her into his household. He saw her, desired her, wanted her, and took her. God didn't work in Abram's life. God worked in Pharaoh's life to protect her and deliver her back to her husband. So how God delivers is very different in each of these examples, isn't it? And I think that's important for you to realize is that there is not one way that God is going to work this all out, but our trust in the Lord is that some way I am not going to be afraid of any of the terrible results that might happen because you can imagine all kinds of things how it's going to end up. And I've seen gals go that route. It's like, well, I can't handle every every possible outcome of this that you can imagine and to help you overcome your fear. You just need to trust God, do what is good, do what is right, and put it in his hands. Make it a matter of prayer. He could be working in your husband. He could be taking away that husband, removing him from the earth. He could be working in others outside of your relationship that will impact it. Even your enemies to bring him around. You don't know, but God does. Will you trust him? So we find humility, contentment, and now faith. These are the virtues of doing what is good, being daughters of Sarah. We have a little song, Abraham has many sons, we need to have another whole section that's Sarah had many daughters. Are you one of them? In your concept of your role in the home, wives, are you one of those? Are you a daughter of Sarah? That you're going to believe and trust in God enough to obey your husband when he asks you to do a ridiculous thing, like go to, like, don't admit you're married to him. When he asks you to. Bizarre. She obeyed. God protected her. She did what was right. And God guarded her. We do not need to be afraid with any terror. Even though there might be pain. Even though there might be frustration. Even though there might be tears. You can trust God to care for you. If we choose to do good, obeying those that are in authority over us, a meek and quiet spirit, submitting to your own husbands, regardless of whether they are acting wisely or foolishly, godly or wickedly, 
whether they are scoundrels or men of faith, you can trust God. And this is the concept of having no fear of any terror. This is what's involved in that. How does this come together in a home? You're setting your course that I'm going to please my husband. And you know not only the buttons to push to get him riled up, you also know the buttons to push or to implement (laughs) that he are the things he likes. In the course of our marriage now, I've been married, how long have I been married? Like 30, boy, 37 years coming, right? Am I right? Thank the Lord I can do math. Coming up on 37 years. And I got to tell you that, that we didn't get it right all the time. Not her and not me. We're going to talk more about the men the next couple of weeks. There were times that she pouted because she was being neglected in her mind because I wanted to play a board game with all the guys downstairs. We were only married a year. She didn't understand that. And I knew I was in trouble every time I come up. You know, it couldn't be a board game that lasted like an hour. It had to be like an eight-hour board game, you know. When you're a newlywed man, you don't go, but you do, because you're not very good at being a husband, she's not very good at being a wife. You learn. You might say, well, it gets resolved. Well, no, because last night my wife went out there and did good, and I came home and was mad, because nothing was where I had put it. She was being helpful. Then it rained, (laughs) and it was very unhelpful. So what's she going to do? Well, she can pout, she can get mad, she can cry. And she probably want to do all three things. Okay, But it better just to communicate, I tried to make you happy, I tried to do what's good. And she's still here today, she's safe, still love her. But I'm trying to get that from the very beginning to just last night. These are things we all have to work on. There's no time when you have arrived and now you don't have to think about that, these instructions in your marriage. You will hopefully mature, 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 and there'll be less fighting and more godliness, but the realities of life still happen, the circumstances of life still happen, the stresses of life still happen, the frustrations of life still happen, and they'll strain your relationship, and that's not the time to abandon these principles, but to embrace them more. It's not the time to say, he's not worth submitting to. I try to do my best, and he doesn't appreciate it. In fact, I get yelled at for helping him. No, gentle, quiet spirit, you do good. You have nothing to be afraid of, nothing to be guilty of. So you're not appreciated. That's not why you did it to begin with. You did it because you didn't really want to bring him displeasure. You wanted to submit. You wanted to be his helpmeet. And it doesn't always work out. Do I abandon that? No. I recommit myself to that role. Because remember, whether... You are treated badly or treated well, do good. That's true in the workforce. That's true in the church. That's true in any relationship. I'm going to do what's right, whether it is for my benefit or not. And so anything else is of the evil one and it's of our ego and our self-centeredness. When you go off and pout, who are you, what are you doing? You're feeling sorry for who? You, yourself. <laughs> your tears are for you, yourself. Your, tear, your, your, your anger is because you didn't get 
treated right in your mind. These are selfish concepts that react to that. Selfless ones acknowledge, I'm just going to recommit myself to doing better from now on. Even though I might think I've done the best I could. And again, our example in all of this is Jesus Christ. Was Jesus Christ afraid with any terror? Well, he had the pressure points, didn't he, in Gethsemane? We talked about Gethsemane last week when he made that declaration, that settledness, that contentment, not my will but yours be done. But what came before that? Before that, if there's any way for this to me, avoid this cup, please let it pass by me. But there wasn't any way. And the fact is, is that sometimes there's no way to avoid pain in your marriage. Because you're dealing with sinful, even believers, even men of faith, you're dealing with Men who haven't been perfected yet. As much as they tried to say loving you is like being in heaven, you're, they're not. Okay? <laughs> All right? They have their imperfections as you have yours. And there's going to be pain involved. And you're going to have, I wish, I, you don't wish those things because they're not possible anymore. Because this is your husband, it's your own husband. We go back to the first principle two weeks ago. This is your own it. Take responsibility for your commitment, the vows you have made to your husband. And stop worrying about making sure he's committing or, or committed to his side of the vows. Your responsibility is for yours, for your part that you agreed to that you pledged before God and man and that man to do it for him. I'm not a big one for renewing vows in a formal way. Um, I've never (laughs) seen the value of that myself. It's not something we've ever talked about even wanting to do. Um, But there is some value to at least reminding yourself of those vows every now and then, maybe once a year. I don't know, January or maybe some other time during the year, like your anniversary. I'm just remembering, you know, I vowed to be your wife. Before God, I made that vow. Before God, you should have some fear about that. Because vows are held by God in very high esteem to the point that it costs one man his daughter because he made a vow to God. First thing comes out of my house to greet me is I'm going to dedicate to you. It was his daughter. Dumb vow. God holds him to it. The agreement between Joshua and the Gibeonites. Well, they're unbelievers. That doesn't matter. Our covenant agreement doesn't matter because they're unbelievers. Well, it matters to God. And it was part of the judgment on Israel, even years and years later, when Saul killed the Gibeonites, that God remembered that broken covenant and caused horrible things to happen in Israel because they broke that covenant. Oh, God cares about your marital covenant. You have making a vow before him. Hold to it. And remind yourself of that. If you need it more than once a year, do it more than once a year. Remind yourself, I have promised this before God to this man. Whether he holds up his side is not relevant. I stand with this on my shoulders before God, and that is that I will hold and do what a wife is to do for her husband. These are the requirements that we point to in 1 Timothy 3. That I just want to challenge you to strengthen your marriage. This is your role. Make sure your men are here next week. Get them up early. 
Give them a great Saturday evening. Get them to bed early because, you know, then they'll get more out of the morning worship because they won't be sleeping. Better sleep they get. Come and <laughs> do all the things you're good at doing. That he comes with a spirit and a heart to hear God's word. But only if you've had the spirit and heart to hear God's word for you these last weeks. Do it fearfully, but not being afraid of doing good. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us, for our marriages that you have placed us in. And Lord, we are all married to imperfect people who fail regularly. And we recognize that we fail in our roles. Lord, give us wisdom to give grace to our partner as much grace as we give ourselves. Lord, we pray for our wives here and future wives. Lord, we pray that you might continue to mold them and to work in their hearts, in their minds, in their lives, that they might become and continue to become the virtuous, godly wives you desire them to be. And Lord, your word has said they would be protected in childbearing and every other kind of pain in their life. They would simply trust you. Lord, we pray that your word might encourage them and challenge them and rebuke them if necessary to press on in being submissive and having a meek and quiet spirit and in being fearfully unafraid. That as far as their part in the relationship that might be strengthened, in our marriages. And Lord, we thank you for so much in your word that is given to us for these examples we have studied that, that help us to implement these principles into our lives. And we thank you for the, for the failures as well, for the evidences of poor husbandry and poor wifedom to direct us elsewhere that we might see wives that build up their homes and their families rather than tear them down over their own heads. Or we see that happening even within your church too often and we pray that you might by your word and your spirit's conviction and by these women's commitments and recommitments you might protect and strengthen our marriages as much as it is up to any one of us. They will do good without fear. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.